us and turn, please, to Mark chapter 8, which is page 843, if you're using the church Bibles. It's Mark chapter 8. And we're going to pick it up at verse 11. Jesus has just fed the 4,000 in a Gentile area, very similar to how he fed the 5,000 in a Jewish area. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. He cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and the man opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, don't even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray together. Father, please would you reach out and touch our eyes Open them so that we may see wonderful things in your word. 
and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. How is your eyesight? The fact is, as we get older, I'm afraid to remind you, I'm sorry about this, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? That's the reality. Uh, but of course, you can do things about it. You can go to the optometrist and try and get some glasses or contact lenses. Um, I'm a contact lens wearer myself. Um, and um, I've had cataracts, you know, I've had a lot. You'd be amazed at how bad my eyesight, but how grateful I am that I've got help so that I can see a lot better than I would otherwise. I was with the optometrist just the week before last. You know, you get that classic, classic question. They show you the, 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 um, the chart, don't they? And they say, tell, tell me what you can see. Um, it's always slightly embarrassing, isn't it? And I, I, I had to say this time, please could you change the chart, because I knew I was going to cheat with the second eye. Well, the question for us today is the question that Jesus asks the blind man in verse 23. Do you see anything? What can you see? And we're going to see, we're talking, of course, not about physical eyesight, but spiritual eyesight here. And we're going to see two examples of shocking blindness and one example of a strange two-stage healing of blindness. First then, the shocking blindness in verses 11 to 21. Two examples. First, willful blindness, verses 11 to 13. Willful blindness. Now, we know from back in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees are out to destroy Jesus. And in verse 11 of chapter 8, um, it actually says not just the Pharisees came out, but literally the Pharisees came out. And that kind of coming out has a slightly hostile feel to it. They came out and began to argue with him, seeking from Jesus a sign from heaven to test him. Now, this is not genuine, open-minded experiment to try and find the truth. No, they're out to get him. You've seen this sort of thing, haven't you, in some interviews with politicians or others where you can tell that the interviewer is out to get them. This isn't just an open-minded inquiry. And Jesus knows this, and his response is a deep sigh in verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. In fact, the word is, is often translated groan, but it's a, it's a word, an intensive form of that verb. He groaned deeply, literally groaned up and he refuses their request. I mean, it's not as if they hadn't got plenty of evidence about his power. It's not as if he hadn't done things before their very eyes, which could, could clearly be seen as signs of who he was and where he gets his power from. And Jesus' refusal represents a conscious decision to terminate his dialogue with the religious leadership. He's not going to debate with them now. He's had months and months and months of that. And also, interestingly, he, he's now leaving his public ministry in the north, in Galilee, where it seems public enthusiasm for him is on the wane. Now, from now on, Jesus is going to concentrate his attention on his committed followers, training them for their future mission. But Jesus is clearly distressed at the unresponsiveness of his generation. 
Why does this generation seek a sign? They've had the evidence. They have it before their very eyes. And I wonder if we ever share that distress as we look at our generation. I think Christians in every generation should be distressed by the unresponsiveness of those around us, if that is the condition of our generation, which sadly it usually is, and it seems to me certainly in this part of the world, in our generation, is the case. There's just a complete indifference, if not hostility, to what we, for example, teach in a church like this. You know, if all the residents of Richmond were joining our live stream today and hearing what's being taught and what's being said, would they be pleased at what they hear? Would they be receptive? I don't think so. It's not just uh, the bishops of the Church of England who are distressing us by their unresponsiveness to the Word of God and unwillingness to submit to it. It's the people around us, isn't it? It's our family, it's our friends, it's our neighbors, it's our colleagues. For the most part, they will know that we're Christians if that's what we are. But does that make them want to come and listen? Does that make them want to find out what is it that makes you tick? Why are you following Jesus? No, they, they know there's something, but they just don't want to know. And there comes a time when there's no longer any point trying to convince people who are not open to be convinced. And Jesus moves on. And for us too, sometimes there's a time where we just move on from people, sad as it is because there is a shocking blindness, which is a willful blindness. The second shocking blindness is a woeful blindness. Verses 14 to 21, this is the disciples in the boat. Now, we don't know whose turn it was to get the groceries that day. But perhaps, we don't know, we're not told, but perhaps when someone in the boat got a bit peckish and said, guys, where's the bread? They sort of scrabbled around in the boat and, oh my goodness, we've only got one loaf. And then Jesus makes the comment in verse 15, presumably having observed the conversation and the interaction as they discover they've only got one loaf in the boat. And he says, watch out, verse 15, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, the leaven, the yeast of Herod, both of whom are fiercely opposed to Jesus. And what's this talk about leaven or yeast? Well, leaven or yeast, if you have a bread maker at home and you make the bread, anyone make the bread at home in a bread maker? Don't forget the yeast, right? Or you're going to get a lump, a hard lump. Have you done that, forgotten the yeast? You just get a kind of brick um, at the bottom of the bread maker. So yeast is important. It, it needs to spread throughout the bread mix. And I think yeast is, is a common metaphor for influence. It influences everything. Well, you want it to. In Matthew's account of this, he spells out that it's the teaching of the Pharisees, which is the bad influence to avoid. Luke talks about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders to be avoided. Mark leaves it open. He doesn't specify. Just bad influence of, of blindness. But it's a blindness that is linked with opposition to Jesus. And this is what Jesus is warning them about. He interrogates them with this series of questions in verse 17, aware of this discussion about no bread. He says, why are you discuss discussing the fact that you've no bread? Come on, guys, that's not what it's about. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
shocking thought. But let me ask further, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Don't you remember how many baskets after the 5,000? 12, 4,007. Do you not yet understand? Oh, the answer is no, they don't yet understand. But thank God for the yet. Yes, it, it's not a willful blindness, it's a woeful blindness, but, but there is a possibility of something being done in time. But here, at this point, there's the, the shocking implication that the disciples, having been classed back in chapter 4 as insiders, now seem to have drifted across the fence to the other side and are in danger of becoming outsiders who are blind and don't understand what Jesus is teaching. It's a sobering moment. And Mark does not hide the ugly truth of the blindness of Jesus' followers. Even though they are living through the dawning of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus the Messiah, they haven't yet seen what this means. Yes, they've, they've witnessed and benefited from the miraculous multiplication of food. But so far, they've only grasped these striking miracles at a very superficial level. And there's a danger for people like us, sitting in church, listening to the Bible, being taught. We can seem very close to Jesus and his teaching. We can be very regular in church. Most people would class us as, well, they must be insiders. Look at them. They're sitting through this man standing at the front and talking for all this time about the Bible. They must be committed. And yet we may actually be blind to the real identity and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. An identity and mission which is going to come more and more into focus as we keep reading through Mark. Which brings us to this strange two-stage healing. Secondly, verses 22 to 30, the strange two-stage healing. Is Jesus just having an off day? Is this a matter of, oh dear, that didn't work. Uh, I'll just have to have another go. No, Jesus is not a bodging DIYer. And the weight of the evidence in the rest of the book is very clear that it can't be right to take that line. Much more likely is that Jesus is teaching a vital lesson, not just to his followers then, but to us now. So there's the question as after the first touch in verse 23, Jesus says, do you see anything? And we get this wonderful answer, verse 24, the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And we had a good example from Adam earlier of what that might look like. But if you're short-sighted like I am, if you don't have your spectacles or your lenses in or whatever, you know what it's like if you, if you look. I mean, you wouldn't dare drive, would you? If you, you haven't got your glasses or your, your lenses in. Because uh, you just can't see things. It's just blurry images of cars, sort of. I've once or twice done it very naughtily. And my goodness, it's amazing that I survived and everybody else survived the experience. Because you just can't see clearly. You see something, but not very clearly. So why does Jesus do this two-stage healing? Well, the next thing that happens, we see it in verses 27 to 30, 
is that Jesus heads north, deeper into Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi is going north from the Sea of Galilee up towards Mount Hermon. And Jesus asks his followers another key question. Verse 27, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, some say, you know, back to life. Others say Elijah, the great prophet from the Old Testament. Others, one of the other prophets. And then the question is honed in. He personalizes the question. He asks them as a group. It's plural. Who do you, plural, say that I am? And we have reached a watershed moment in the book. We, the readers, know from chapter 1, verse 1, just flick back at that if you want, that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Marcus laid it out, very first sentence, right at the beginning, almost the title of the book. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. But this is the first time that anyone is recorded as openly confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And it's a great moment where we've suddenly got the lights on. The sight has kicked in. They can see. As Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Messiah. But we don't need to read much further to discover that, of course, this begs the question as to what kind of a Messiah? Why is it that in verse 30, Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about him? What a bizarre thing to say. They finally got it. The penny has dropped. The light bulb has gone on. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone. Why? Surely this is the moment to come out into the open, to break cover. Well, the answer almost certainly lies in the popular understanding, or misunderstanding, probably better to say, that the Messiah was going to be a political leader who would lead a Jewish uprising against the Roman occupation. That is how the, the understanding of the Messiah had been shaped in Jesus, by Jesus' time. And to allow that kind of misunderstanding to take hold would completely derail Jesus' mission as it approaches its decisive phase in the journey towards Jerusalem. So Jesus forbids open proclamation of his messiahship. So back to the two-stage healing. Why? Well, it's clear from the Old Testament, and doubtless all of us would probably agree, that it's only God who can open the eyes of the physically blind. If someone is congenitally blind, they can't see a thing. Well, it takes a miracle. Only God can do that. And Jesus has been going around doing that, which is powerful evidence of his divine status. But here, as we see from the context, from the, the incident in the boat with the loaf and the questions, Jesus is actually talking about spiritual sight, spiritual understanding. So verse 18, the question is, having eyes, do you not see? He's not talking about how good their physical vision is, whether they've got 20-20 vision or not with their physical eyes. He's talking about the enlightenment of their hearts, the eyes of their hearts. Yes, in verse 29, a moment arrives when they do at last see that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And this is due to God's touch upon their eyes, to open their eyes. 
And Matthew, in his account of this, is explicit that only God the Father has revealed this to Peter. This isn't because he's intelligent and brighter than the rest of the bunch. It's probably just their spokesman saying, well, we've come to the conclusion that you are the Messiah. But it's God's business. He's the one who's done it. But as we shall see next time, there is still considerable blindness on the part of Peter and the other disciples as to what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And as we'll see next time, the idea that, that Jesus must die is completely out of the question from their perspective. If you're the Messiah, you win over your enemies. You defeat them. You don't let them kill you. And from Jesus' perspective, this shows that Peter and the other followers need a second touch for them to see everything clearly about Jesus and his mission. So what do we learn? The question God is asking us is, do you see anything? What can you see? But this is not a physical sight test. This is a spiritual sight test. And the question is not, what do others say about who Jesus is? The question is, what do you say about who Jesus is? It's a question for each one of us personally today. And it's teaching us that if we see anything at all and have come out of blindness into even just partial sight, it's because Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, has touched our eyes, reached out his hand, and given us a measure of sight. Well, we should be very grateful for that. And yet we should want better eyesight, shouldn't we? I mean, there comes a time maybe with your physical eyesight as you get older and you realize it's deteriorating and there's not a lot, if anything, you can do about it. You just have to accept that that's how your eyesight is and make the most of it and try and be a a glass half full person rather than a glass half empty person with your eyesight and your other failing faculties. Sorry to rub it in, um, but I'm with you there. But when it comes to our spiritual eyesight, there should be a lack of contentment, a lack of acceptance that that's all we can see and that's how it is for the rest of our lives. No, we need to ask God to touch our eyesight again, to touch our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and give us clearer sight, better understanding of who Jesus is and why he's come and what it means to follow him, as we shall see as we continue in Mark. Is there anything we can do about it? Well, yes, we can pray and ask God. Ask and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. So don't just be content with how much you can see at the moment. And read the scriptures. This is God's regular means of giving us better eyesight, of giving us the spectacles, of giving us the contact lenses that enable us to see more clearly than we could before. We prayed at the beginning that prayer from Psalm 119, didn't we? Oh Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We ask the Lord to open our eyes, but we're asking him to do it through the means of his word. That's why we're studying the scriptures right now, because we believe that the God who is has given us his word as a means to give us spiritual sight and more spiritual sight. 
And that spiritual sight, and maybe this is the main lesson we need to learn from today, is that spiritual sight does not usually come in just one touch. We need multiple eye surgeries in order to see more and more clearly. Yes, we need to accept that this side of glory, we will never have 2020 spiritual vision, but we want to have better vision. If you think of the chart that you're, you're asked to, to read down in the optometrists, in terms of spiritual chart reading, we want to be able to get to the next line now. Okay, we can see that line clearly. What about the next line? I don't know what line you can read, how good your spiritual eyesight is, but how about asking the Lord to help you get to the next line and see that more clearly? And God in His grace is willing and able to touch our eyes again so that we can see more and more, clearer and clearer about who Jesus is and His wonderful magnificence so that we're not ashamed of Him when we find ourselves before a hostile crowd or an indifferent family member. And we're not ashamed to speak of why He died and the need of His death for our forgiveness. And we realize more and more what it means to follow him, that we will have to be prepared to die every day if we want to follow this Jesus who died for us. We always need to see better. We always need another touch. Let's pray.